Hi, my name is Maggie. The Old Testament reading is found in Exodus 21 to 3. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You must have no other gods before me. The word of the Lord. Hi, I'm Martha. The New Testament reading is found in Acts 7:30 to 34. Forty years later, an angel appeared to Moses in the flame of a burning bush in the wilderness near Mount Sinai. Enthralled by the sight, Moses approached to get a closer look, and he heard the Lord's voice. I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Trembling with fear, Moses didn't dare to investigate any further. And the Lord continued, remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have clearly seen the oppression my people have experienced in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning. I have come down to rescue them. Come, I am sending you to Egypt. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Mary. If you are able, please stand for the gospel reading found in Matthew 22, 34 through 40. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had left the Sadducees speechless, they met together. One of them, a legal expert, tested him. Teacher, what is the great command, greatest commandment in the law? He replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. You must love your neighbor as you love yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing as we pray. Gracious Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to gather together as your people and to listen to your words. We pray that you would give us ears to hear. Help us to hear what it is that you are speaking to us today through your word and your spirit. Would you open our minds to understand all the implications of it? And would you reach down to the depths of our hearts and transform us into the kind of people who live according to your words? We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Jason Jackson. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life Downtown. Again, if you're visiting with us this morning, we're absolutely delighted you're here. This is a good Sunday because we're beginning a brand new sermon series on the Ten Commandments. Uh, and a series I've been excited about for a while ever since we decided to talk about it. The Ten Commandments are one of these sort of passages in the Bible that are just incredibly famous. You know, you think about the Psalm 23 or the Lord's Prayer or the Beatitudes, most people have heard of the Ten Commandments at some point. And if they haven't read them, then you've probably seen the movie. <laughs> I have a true confession to make. I have actually never seen, I know, I've never seen the Charlton Heston Ten Commandments film. I think that probably disqualifies me from being a pastor. It's like, it should have happened in seminary and I skipped the class. And you know, I grew up in a family that spent more time watching like the Goonies and Ferris Bueller than films like, you know, we got a, a couple of other folks that had that experience. We were taking a day off from the Ten Commandments. So this is, it has this sort of popularity to it. And yet at the same time, we have a really capricious relationship with the Ten Commandments. 
on the one hand, we can get really excited about like public displays of the Ten Commandments. Say, yeah, the Ten Commandments are awesome. We should post them everywhere, not just on Facebook, but like in courthouses and other places. We should have the Ten Commandments like out front. These things are good. So when it comes to displaying them, we can have a sort of a lot of positive sort of passion. But when it comes to doing them, we start to hedge ourselves a little bit, right? Some of them we take pretty seriously, but others of them we take about as seriously as we take the speed limit, right? Or as seriously as the NBA takes traveling or charging or any other rule in the rule book, especially when LeBron's on the court. Like they just kind of, the rules just go out. No, that was like six steps he took there. Come on, people. We just sort of like, uh, I'm not sure what to do with these things. And if we're really kind of pressed, there's a lot of us who sort of think the Ten Commandments, you know, sort of as a whole, maybe are simply just kind of a bunch of arbitrary rules from a rather fussy God. Or we think, no, they're really good things, but they're kind of expired instructions, Either they're just too old to really matter anymore, they've kind of passed their shelf date, or we think, ah, oh, Jesus has just gotten rid of all of that stuff. And so we have this kind of strange relationship. But what we hope to explore throughout this entire series is what if the Ten Commandments are so much more? What if there is so much more there than we've ever even actually realized before? Even in our familiarity with them, Perhaps we've missed some of the depth and the nuance and the beauty of what's behind these words and the way they're meant to work and function in the life of God's people. It's hard to imagine the, uh, the scriptures being able to highlight a set of passages or verses more than the way the scripture highlights the Ten Commandments. They are incredibly sort of set out, even within the context of the Old Testament. As we're reading through the first set of law code that we encounter in Exodus chapter 20, they're repeated or reiterated to some degree in Exodus chapter 34. Then they're repeated nearly verbatim in Deuteronomy chapter 5. This doesn't happen with any other group of laws. Not only that, but these laws and these laws alone are described as being uh, written by the finger of God in tablets of stone. And then those tablets of stone, which probably communicate something about their importance or their permanence, are then taken and placed in the Ark of the Covenant, the only scriptures that make it into the Ark. And then that ark is taken and placed in the Holy of Holies, in the center of Israel's temple, and the place they go to meet with God and what they consider to be the very center of the universe, these words dwell in the same place as God. And they're called the center point, or they're described as the centerpiece of God's covenant with Israel. Now, that word covenant is a word that we use around church a lot. I didn't grow up in church, so I spent the first few years kind of being a Christian, just kind of nodding my head when people said covenant, having no clue what it meant. It was just kind of another word that got thrown out there. Uh, but really what a covenant is, is very simply, it's an ancient political treaty. 
that when God goes to initiate and define his relationship with Israel, he communicates with them on terms they understand. He co-opts something from their culture and uses it to be able to describe his relationship with them. And an ancient political treaty didn't necessarily function the same way that ours did. When we think of treaties, we mainly think of like fair trade sort of agreements. But in the ancient world, what a political treaty did was that it created a binding relationship between two parties in which they agreed to act toward one another the way that family acts toward one another. So he's saying, hey, we are going to act in the same way we would act as if we were family. We can think of it as something similar to what happens in marriage as two people who are not previously related to one another stand in front of God and their friends and their family and they make vows and they agree to act as family toward one another and a family's created. Or what happens when a family adopts a child and a, fa- and a child comes in and joins that family and they both agree to say, yes, we're going to be family with one another. Even the church is a picture of this. As people who previously had no association, no affiliation with one another, being brought together in Jesus in a way that were described as brothers and sisters, being made family where we previously weren't. Now, when we think about Old Testament sort of covenants, we think about the way that covenants worked in the Old Testament, we typically have sort of a popularized view of this. And the typical way it's described is this way, is that what God was saying to Israel was, Israel, if you keep my laws, if you keep my commands, if you do all these things that I'm asking of you, then you'll be saved. If you do what I ask, if you keep my laws, if you keep my rules, then you will be saved. And that popular version, as we kind of spread it out, then sees the Old Testament as salvation by works. That Israel sort of earns its salvation by doing the law. But the New Testament is salvation by grace. And then when we talk about the Old Testament covenants, sometimes we think about the Old Old Testament covenants as conditional. Like, if Israel does this, then God will do that. But the New Testament is unconditional. It's just what God does. Here's the problem with that point of view. There's several of them. But the first one is, is that God did not give the law to Israel while they were in Egypt. He didn't give it to them while they were there. It was given to them after he'd already saved them. The Ten Commandments come to Israel after they've already been rescued. They've already been saved. They've already been redeemed. They've already experienced the salvation of God. We see this really clearly in when we look at the Ten Commandments. So if you want to look, Exodus chapter 20, if you brought a Bible, you can turn there or you can follow along on the screen. But listen to the first words that God says in this passage. The words that all too often don't actually make it onto our public displays. The words that sort of frame all that he says, but we typically leave out. It begins this way. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. See, the Ten Commandments don't begin with a command. The Ten Commandments actually begin with a statement about who God is and what God has done. They begin with a statement of grace. 
of gracious salvation, of gracious deliverance, that I am the Lord your God who rescued you. This is God's first words to his people. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, in fact, the way that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is typically defined is either as I am the Lord your God who is gracious and compassionate, or he is identified over and over and over again as the God of the Exodus. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. Even if we think about the book of Exodus as a whole, and the way that we kind of are presented the Ten Commandments, we have 19 chapters, the beginning of the book of Exodus, detailing Israel's plight and oppression, talking about all the things that they have suffered, all the things that they have gone through, and then detailing all the ways, all the ways that God worked in order to bring them up out of that place. Just three months before the Ten Commandments are given, we find Israel groaning and crying out for help, crying out for deliverance. They were oppressed with heavy labor. The lives of their children were threatened. They had no rights, no power, no resources. They were in bondage physically, politically, economically, socially, spiritually. They were bound up in every way that a group of people can, and God liberated them. He set them free. Why? Is it because they kept the covenant? Is it because they kept the Ten Commandments? They didn't even have them yet. The book of Deuteronomy says that God delivered them, Deuteronomy chapter 7, because he loved them. Deuteronomy 9 makes it clear, it's not because you were righteous, but I loved you, I heard your cry, and I delivered you from Egypt. I saved you by my grace. Not because you earned it, but because I love you. And so the Ten Commandments are rooted and grounded in God's gracious deliverance. If we read them in any other way, we've fundamentally missed what God is doing in and through these words. We miss the heart behind them. We miss the heart of the person who gives them, the God who gives them. We miss it completely. See, salvation in both the Old and the New Testament has always been by grace, through faith, and it's always been expressed in obedience. It's always been expressed in saying, the God who graciously set me free, what does it look like to serve that God? How do I now then live in light of all that he has done? This is highlighted in the New Testament in the sense that the giving of the law is not replaced by the giving of grace. But instead, in the New Testament, the giving of the law is paralleled by the giving of the Holy Spirit. That in Jewish tradition, the Ten Commandments, the covenant on Mount Sinai were given on the day of Pentecost. In the New Testament, as the early followers of Jesus are gathered together in a room in Acts chapter 2, and God sends his spirit, he does so on the day of Pentecost. 
See, in the New Testament, the Spirit comes not to nullify the law, not to get rid of the law, but to actually empower us to be able to live in accordance with God's ways in the world. The Spirit comes to actually write the law, the covenant on our hearts that we might become the kind of people who live lives that put God's character on display. They come to actually empower us to do what we could not do before. When I was a kid, uh, my grandma and her boyfriend of 30 years, who we called grandpa because he's the only grandpa I knew, would frequently at Christmas time give us different presents. And so from grandma, we would get a toy. You know, some like G.I. Joe, He-Man, you know, Star Wars thing. You know, some vehicle that was battery powered. But then grandpa would always give us two things, batteries and black olives. <laughs> My cousins and I were obsessed with them, so we each had to have our own can so that there wasn't fights around. But I tell you, that toy was awesome. That toy was a gift, but it worked a whole lot better with the batteries, right? And I think the same way the Spirit comes to empower us to live in right relationship with God and with one another. So God set Israel free by his grace. It was gracious deliverance, gracious freedom that was given. And then he gave them the Ten Commandments. And he gave them, he gave them the Ten Commandments, I think, in order to protect this freedom. The Ten Commandments were given to protect the freedom that God had won for the Israelites. Imagine with me for a moment that you're an ancient Israelite, that your entire life you've been a slave. Your grandparents were slaves. Your parents were slaves. You are a slave. And if you have children, your children are going to be slaves. And this is all you've ever known, that your entire life and identity and value and worth and significance and everything you know from sunrise to sunset is about a life under the thumb of the Pharaoh. This is all you've known. And then you've been miraculously, graciously emancipated from all of that. That you've been set free, that you've been rescued, that you've been delivered, that you've been brought out of Egypt out of the house of slavery, and the God who did it invites you to be his people. And he says he wants to give you a land to live in so that you might live free lives. Imagine that. And then, but all you've ever known is oppression. All you've ever known is life one way. And now you have to set up a new society to find a way to organize your life together as a people? How are you going to protect and preserve those freedoms that you've been given? What is life going to look like? How are you going to do that? And you're beginning to think through that and God tells you exactly how. He gives you a constitution. He says, this is what life will look like for my people. He gives you the 10 commandments, gives you laws to govern your life with him and with each other. It's a gracious gift that's been given. Now, I know it doesn't feel that way sometimes because we think about the Ten Commandments and we see them being worded in the negative, right? 
The Ten Commandments seem to be just things that God's saying don't do. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. And sort of the way we respond to other authorities in our life, anytime they word something in the negative, we just sort of feel like, oh, you're just being fussy and trying to restrict my freedom. You're just trying to keep me from things that I might like or that I might enjoy or that I might do something else. And they just sort of feel that way. They come across as just restrictive prohibitions. But the Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright makes it really clear that the purpose of the Ten Commandments was not restrictive, but protective. That the Ten Commandments were designed to protect the kinds of things that were constantly in jeopardy in Egypt. Designed to protect so that they might flourish. Designed to protect life, and faith, and marriage, and family, and property. They were given so that Israel might remain free and they never again would be subjected to injustice internally from one another, that they might actually continue to live free lives. For us, probably the closest example of that is the Bill of Rights, which are again typically worded in the negative. Congress shall not do this, but they're designed and intended to protect freedoms that we hold dear. They're designed to function in a certain way. So the Ten Commandments were grounded and rooted in the gracious deliverance of God. They are also sort of these continued expressions of how to protect that freedom. The third thing I want to say about the Ten Commandments this morning is that the Ten Commandments actually reveal God's character and our calling. Or as Pastor Glenn said earlier, God's character and our mission. There's an Old Testament scholar named Jay Sklar who says that the Old Testament laws are actually a window into the Lord's hearts. That they are windows into the hearts of the lawgiver. There's something about each of these words that are given that in some way disclose what God is like. They reveal what it is God most deeply cares about so that we might know something about him. In the same way, if you're a part of a healthy family, healthy home, a healthy business, a healthy place of employment, there are all sorts of like rules and restrictions and prohibitions and all of those things that are there. And the real heart behind all those things is not simply to restrict things off, but they're actually ways of embodying the character of the family or the character of the business. They're a way of sort of putting into place or putting into effect the very values and things that the group holds Dear, my family had all sorts of just rules kind of growing up, and at times they felt rather ridiculous. One of them just was simply like, do not cross the street. We lived across the street from like a public nine-hole golf course, you know, the kind of like three trees and one sand trap, and a small community in rural Iowa. And our rule was you couldn't cross the street. And it wasn't because my parents didn't want me to golf. It wasn't restricting in that end. They just knew that as people were coming to and from the country club, that they were driving in all sorts of kind of erratic ways. They said, so don't cross the street. Why? Because they were arbitrary and fussy and kind of restricted parents. No, they didn't want me to play Frogger with my life. <laughs> they knew something and they embodied that care, that concern, their character, their love in some sort of rule or restriction. But not only do the Ten Commandments disclose the character of God, they disclose our calling. They disclose our mission. They disclose who it is that God is calling his people to be. If you turn to Exodus chapter 19, beginning in verse 4, right before we find the Ten Commandments, we find these words being spoken. 
and says in verse 4, you saw what I did to the Egyptians, how I lifted you up on eagles' wings and brought you to me, brought you to myself. So now, if you faithfully obey me and stay true to my covenant, you will be, or another way of reading is you will become my most treasured, precious possession out of all the peoples, since the whole earth belongs to me. And you will be, or you will become, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You will become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Imagine yourself as a just-set-free slave hearing those words from the God who set you free, that you will be my prized possession, that you will be a kingdom of priests who show the world what I'm like. You will be a holy nation, set apart, unique, different, special. You will become like me, the God who just proved his power and supremacy over the greatest empire in the known world. You will become like me. Now, this is what God's doing. It's not so much a threat as a promise. And God's saying this, if you keep my commandments, you who've already been set free, this is what you will become. That your life will actually embody my character. That you will be transformed from slaves into priests. So the intention of the Ten Commandments is to teach God's people how to be fully human. How to live free and full lives, the kind of lives that put God's character and his reign on display for the whole world. The kind of lives that we were intended to live in the garden. This is really a recovery of true humanity and true calling and true mission, true relationship with God, true relationship with others in the world. God saying, come in, follow these things. Let me teach you what it means to be human. Let me teach you how to live. Let me show you the way to continue to live free and full lives. And here's the first thing God asks, that after all of that, within that sort of setting and context of this is who God is, and this is what God has done, and this is who I want you to become, this is my calling on your lives, the Lord issues this command, you shall have no other gods before me. This is not coming out of nowhere. Actually, in every, nearly every ancient treaty that we found, every ancient covenant, this is what the covenant maker asked for. They asked for exclusive loyalty, absolute allegiance. It's a way of saying, hey, if this is going to work, if I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people, if you're going to embody and reflect my character, if you're going to live free and full lives, if you want everything that I'm promising you and what this is going to look like, and I'm going to put everything that I've just promised on display in and through your lives, then the only way this can work if it's just you and me. There can't be other gods in this mix. You can't be loyal to other ways, to other ideas, to other gods. It has to be you and me. Or as the Texans would say, you got to dance with the one who brung you. <laughs> this is the only way this is going to work. If you're going to live free, if you're going to become like me, then this is the kind of relationship 
And the purpose of this command is not to get us to like believe in a generic, abstract, or philosophical concept of God. This is not trying to call us into some sort of like belief in monotheism. This is a call to commit our lives to the specific God of Israel, to the God who concretely acted in history, who brought Israel out of Egypt and later raised Jesus from the dead. It's saying commit your lives wholly to this God, to the God who delivers, the God who sets free, the God who knows what it means to live free and full. In other words, another way of saying it is to love the God who loves you, to serve the God who has served you, to be faithful to the God who's proven himself to be faithful to you, to commit yourself to the God who has committed himself to you. This is reflected most clearly in the positive versions of the commandments, where the commandment is worded in the other way, like in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Love the Lord your God with all your hearts, with all your being, with all your strength. Love him with everything you've got, because that's how he loves you. Or Deuteronomy 13, 4, you must follow the Lord your God alone. Revere him. Follow his commandments. Obey his voice. Worship him. Cling to him. No other. Cling to the God who has clung on to you. Now, this is the call of the first commandment. Now, we think about Israel's story. We can see Israel's story as a tragedy. Because over and over and over and over again, Israel didn't do this. Israel consistently turned away from Yahweh, turned away from their covenant with him, and they turned to other gods. It's just a few chapters after the Ten Commandments are given that we find Aaron and the people sitting at the base of Mount Sinai and constructing a golden calf to worship. It's not long after their land before we hear of Israel turning and worshiping Baal or worshiping Asherah, breaking the commandment, breaking the covenant with the faithful one and proving themselves to be faithless and turning away. Now, if we think about that in our own lives, typically we do not break this commandment in such overt ways, right? Very few of us have golden calves set up in our kitchen or in our living room. We're constructing things and putting them up and bowing down to them in the context of our homes. Instead, the way that we break this command is typically a lot more subtle. It's a little bit under the radar. And I think the two typical ways that we do that, number one, is instead of turning to other gods, we actually turn things into God. All right, rather than turning to other gods, we turn someone or something into a God in our life. And what typically happens is that we have some need, some desire, whether we're looking for security, we're looking for joy, we're looking for comfort, we're looking for wealth, we're looking for prosperity, we're looking for something. And rather than turning to the only one who can ultimately meet those needs in our life and teach us the right way in which to experience those things, we begin to turn to something else. And we make that a God in our life in that particular area. We begin to worship and serve those things and look to them to meet those kind of deep, heartfelt longings or needs in our life. And we begin to turn away 
from obedience to Yahweh, from allegiance to him, and we begin to pledge allegiance to these other things in hopes of what they might do for us. I think the second way that we do it is maybe even a little bit more subtle, and which is this, is that we actually take God and we begin to restrict him in areas of our life. That we begin to say, yes, you can be God in this area, but in these areas, I'm going to turn to something else. God, I really, really like what you have to say about the whole marriage thing, so that's going to work for me here. But what you have to say about money, I'm not sure that that's going to get me to where I want to go and help me accomplish my needs, this whole simplicity, generosity thing. I think I like my plan better to get me to the goals that I have, so I'm actually going to pledge allegiance to a different system, to a different way, to a different set of rules or laws, because I think that will get me there faster. Or we might say to God, hey, I really love what you have to say about that forgiveness thing. Hey, Jesus and forgiveness, that feels right to me, to live in that kind of free way with people, not kind of holding on to and clutching that kind of stuff. But what do you have to say about sexuality? Yeah, that feels like way too restrictive for me, God. That feels rather like old and antiquated and fussy and restrictive and other things. So I'm going to turn to some other thoughts, some other ideas, some other commands, some other practices. I'm going to turn there. And we begin to restrict God to just specific areas of our life, the areas that we actually feel like are most beneficial to us. And the areas where we feel like following the Lord's way, following the, the Lord's commands might feel a little painful, might feel a little hard, might not seem to line up with the very things that we think that we want or need or desire. We begin to sort of restrict him out of those areas. And this is actually the challenge of discipleship. The challenge of discipleship is what does it mean for us to bring every aspect of our life under the Lordship of Jesus? What does it look like to follow Jesus in every area of our life, not just in the places that we like the best or that seem to work for us? What does that look like? In both those options of sort of turning to meet our needs in particular ways or turning to other sort of gods to be sovereign over areas of our life, ultimately what we're doing is actually setting ourselves up as God. It's actually both ways of saying, I think we know better. I think we know what's right. I think we know the way, which is probably the exact reason why Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, they must deny themselves, take up a cross and follow me. The God of self is probably the God that we most frequently turn to in the midst of our culture and our time and our situation. But here's the good news in the midst of it all. No matter where we find ourselves kind of in the middle of this, that when our love fails, his love remains steadfast. And this is the good news in the midst of it. We see, we can think of Israel's story simply as a tragedy, right? We can focus on Israel and we can see Israel breaking covenant, breaking covenant, breaking covenant, disobeying, being unfaithful, messing things up, mucking up their opportunity, continuing to fail and fail and fail and fail. Or we can look at the story from the other angle and see how it is that the God who brought them out of Egypt in the midst of all of those moments 
continued to prove himself to be faithful. That time after time after time after time, when Israel's love failed, God's love remained steadfast. And the the same thing is true in our lives. That as we turn away, God does not. As he continues to come after us, continues to pursue us, proves himself to be the faithful one, even when we are unfaithful. He continues, says, you are my kids. I love you. I saved you and redeemed you and rescued you because of my love. Now come back to, to me. I'm still here. I still love you. I still want to be your God, and I want you to be my people. And not only does God prove himself to be faithful, but he also proves himself to be the one who's able to make us faithful. That he is the one that by sending Jesus and by sending the Holy Spirit can actually get to the very things inside of us that cause us to turn away from him and he can transform those things. He can transform our longings and our desires. He can set us free from those sins and temptations and can cause us to turn back to him and even make it that the deepest longing of our heart is for him and him alone. He can teach us and show us and empower us what it actually means to love and serve the God who loves and serves us. Amen? This is our God. He's the faithful one who wants to make us faithful. The one who saved Israel from Egypt and called them to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And the one who saves us from every dark power that's behind every Egypt who saves us from sin and death in order to transform us into a kingdom of priests and a holy nation that we might show the world what he is like. This is who God is. It's that God who says, don't have any other gods before me. You don't need them. You don't want them. It's not going to go well. (laughs) Come to me. Amen? Amen. And every Sunday, we have an opportunity to come back. When we come to the table, every week we kind of center our worship on this space where we come and we remember what Jesus did. But we call the table or communion or Eucharist the sacrament. Come from the Latin word sacramentum. In old uh, and ancient Rome, a sacramentum was an oath or a vow of allegiance that people would give either to Caesar or to one of the Roman gods. And the church picked up on it and said, no, 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 no. You know what? We want to pledge our allegiance to the God who raised Jesus from the dead. That's who we're going to pledge our allegiance to. We're going to pledge our allegiance to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to them alone. And so every week when we come back to the table, we have an opportunity to pledge anew our allegiance, to repent of the places that our love has failed in our confession to remember and embrace that while our love has failed, his love has remained steadfast and to recommit ourselves to the God who commits himself to us and to come to him and say, Father, change me so that not only am I forgiven, but that you make me faithful. Amen?